This morning we are beginning our series on Advent. And so and the topic we're addressing and kind of looking at this morning is justice. And so if you want to begin to make your way to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 64 for the lion's share of our time together this morning, looking at the idea of justice. Now, probably when you conceive the word justice and you begin to think about it, a number of different things pop into your head. And perhaps you've kind of scanned the, the headlines, you've watched a little bit of news, you read the ticker, you're just kind of a headline uh, news person, or uh, as an unnamed person I recently met, you get all of your news on ESPN News. And so if it doesn't deal with a football uh, franchise or owner, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, perhaps, uh, anyway, I'm not trying to say anything in particular, Justin. Man, uh, justice, justice as we conceive it and we kind of think about it, we're most comfortable with justice being something visited out there. It's something that uh, we see a wrong that we want to be righted. We see some injustice that we want to be fixed. It's something that assaults someone close to us. It assaults us personally or it assaults our worldview. And so justice is something that we kind of look out there and it's something that we want to see brought out there. So maybe you've been watching the news. Maybe you've been reading the headlines. And so you're reading all about sexual assault. So you, you hear this and you read these, these graphic and perverted descriptions of what these men have, have done and these, these violences and injustices they perpetrated against women. You are outraged. You're outraged at the actions that, they, that they've done. You're outraged at, at the complicity of all those who knew these things were going on and did nothing because it was acceptable, because they were a person of power, because they were a person of influence, and, 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 and perhaps because they support a worldview that just allows them to get by. People of power and influence who might bring good things our way or, or good things someone else's way. So we give them a buy when they violate someone else's autonomy, when they assault someone else sexually. Maybe you expand it and you begin to kind of look at the idea of mass displacement of, of persons across Africa and, and how that there's still actually a slave trade going on in Northern Africa. You read this and you're heart sick and you're broken and you're thinking, how can this be? In the year 2017, how, how can this exist? How can we know about this and it still take place? Like what rational person looks at this and says, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. We can take over someone else and we can sell them and that's fine. Maybe you look around and you see the poor in our community. You see the homeless in our community. You see the, the, those addicted to drugs in our community. You think, why is no one doing anything? Why is nothing changing? So you begin to invest yourself, begin to pour yourself out, trying to make it right as you conceive the world. That's how most of us see justice. The difficult thing is when we recognize God's justice is not just out there, it's not just to rule and reign out in the world, but his justice also has to rule and has to reign in my heart. 
That's what is difficult. We want his justice to reign out there, but we want autonomy in here. I want the freedom to make decisions without recrimination. I want a pass. I want the God of justice out there. I want the God of mercy in here. Isaiah gives us an opportunity to look at a people who saw injustice out there, but they failed to recognize or attempted to fail to recognize the injustice perpetrated by themselves. And so they're faced with a decision of what it might look like to pray for, to entreat that God's justice would find them in the midst of their waywardness. Isaiah opens up, and it's helpful for us to look at verse 19 of chapter 63. Because I want you to see really the perverse nature of their waywardness. We know that the people of Israel are his special informed people. He has fashioned them. He brought them out of captivity. He has delivered them. But look how they're described here. He says, we become like those whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. So Isaiah looks out and he looks out at Judah. He says, you need to understand the pickle that we're in. You need to understand the situation we find ourselves in. You need to understand what our behavior is casting us like. We're like these people that God has never ruled over. So he takes all of their history. And so they say, what about when, when uh, Abram became Abraham? He's like, that never happened. And so, okay, well, what about uh, Jacob's sons? And that never happened. Well, what about when Moses came along and he drove us out of the land? He brought us into the promised land. And, and Isaiah's response is, we're acting like none of those things ever took place. It's our behavior. It's our heart. We're acting like those that have never been ruled by God. He says, like those that are never, ever called by his name. Their actions aren't giving evidence to who they belong in reality. Their actions are giving evidence to thinking that they have their own sense of autonomy. They can be whoever they want to be. They can do whatever they want to do without repercussion. They want justice out there. They don't want justice in here. So Isaiah begins to entreat God on behalf of the people. Look what he says here in verse 1 of chapter 64. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now, the interesting thing that he's asking God to do here, he's not saying, God, in the future at some point, would you do this? Like, would you do this? Would you engage in this behavior? So that when you do this and when you engage in this behavior, we would be changed. In essence, what he's saying is, God, would that you had already done this. He's asking that God would have already interceded on their behalf, that he would have stepped in and they would have changed things by virtue of his presence. Now, if you're a careful Bible reader, you read this and say, you know, I feel like I've read the Old Testament several times and I feel like there is a place, like I feel like the thing he's asking for, perhaps God might have already done. You're very bright. You're very smart. In fact, if you turn to Exodus 19, you'll find exact, exact thing. Exodus 19, God has been leading the people out uh, through leading Moses and having him go before them. And then in there in chapter 19, we find that they are at Mount Sinai. And in verse 16, it says, And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And what happened? It says, All the people in the camp trembled. God's presence, his movement in their midst struck them at the heart of who they were. 
They could not be indifferent. They could not be dispassionate. God's presence had a visceral change in who they were. It says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire, and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sounds of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and look what it says here, and God answered him in thunder. This terrific, terrible, all-powerful display of God's majesty and might on Mount Sinai. So what Isaiah is praying for here, what he is asking for here, we recognize is an illusion, is a nod towards something God has already done. We have seen God move in this way. Continues, he says, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your, to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Now, the interesting thing about what he's saying here and where we find him is that how has he previously described them in verse 19 of chapter 63? We're like those whom you've never ruled. We're like those whom have never been called by your name. So he's really speaking on two levels. He's beginning to let them know that it's not just enough to want to see justice brought out there, to see injustice ended, but the same thing has to be true of us. And so he's calling on them, he's beckoning them to recognize the movement of God in their past so that their future might be significantly altered. He says, just as we want to see his adversaries tremble and want to see God's name known among them, so too that may be true of us. Verse 3, he says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Verse 3 really just kind of speaks to the issue that they weren't a people that gathered around in Egypt. Moses comes up and Moses begins to lay it out for them and say, Look, God is moving. He's going to deliver you. I am has sent me. And they pull this committee around and say, This I am Moses speaks of. He sounds a lot like the God who would part a sea. Somebody else says, I, I, you know what? I bet if we go on this trip with Moses, he does just that thing. They say, yes, this is the kind of God he is. Somebody else comes along and say, no, this God Moses speaks of, I suppose he's also the kind of God that would send a variety of plagues to set us free. And somebody says, of course he is. I can see it right here in How to Peg Your God in 10.5 in Easy Steps. It's a very confusing title, but a very helpful book. They didn't gather around and begin to peg through and say, oh, this is the type of thing this God or a God like this would do. So we did not expect these things, but we recognize that every action God performed is moving directly in line with his character. So when he sets them free, he's moving in line with his character. When he parts the sea, he's moving in line with his character. And when he shows up in majesty and might and causes fire and cloud to envelop the mountain and they tremble at the sight of him, they're responding not to what they see, but they're responding to who they know him to be. He says, these days of old when you did awesome things we didn't look for, he wants to point at the uniqueness of God. So in verse 4, he says, From of old, in fact, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God beside you. So in some sense, he's telling them, you need to understand that this God is, is incredibly wholly different from every other deity that you might conceive. 
But it's not just that. In fact, he moves from this and he tells them, you need to understand that in reality, no other God exists. The God of the Assyrians, the God of the Egyptians, they are not real. They are not of substance. This God alone, no eye has seen, no ear has heard a God besides you. All these other things are fakes and imposters. But what is this God doing? What is this God going to do? He says, this is a God who acts for those who wait for him. Judah had to know it was a matter of time before they were going to be taken into exile. Israel had already been taken into exile. The Assyrians are coming. Everybody's doing kind of what they see best, what they think is best to do. So what does God call them to do? To wait and to be patient. Not to wait and suspect that, that things will get better. Oh, this is okay. The Assyrians are going to lose interest. You know what? Those Assyrians, those guys, they just can't keep their attention span for very long. It's okay. No, what he's telling them in this is not to wait for things to get better, but to wait for God. He is a God who acts for those who wait for him. But a, particularly, a particular kind of person who waits for him. It's not just this patient person who sits and waits and says, oh, it's okay, I can do anything for a year. Oh, it's okay, I can do anything for a month. Oh, it's okay. Oh, I can't do that. But it's this person, verse 5, he says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember your ways. God says he, he, meets, three, he meets a person who has three characteristics primarily. The ESV kind of muddles the wording on this thing a little bit. He says, you meet him who joyfully. In essence, what he's talking about there is you meet the one who rejoices at having a right relationship with God. You meet this person that is captivated and given over to rejoicing and being glad at having a right relationship with God. They're not rejoicing in externals. They're not rejoicing in their situation. What the, 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 the sole point of their happiness and joy stems from having this right and righteous relationship with God. Now, what does that take? We're going to come to know within the confines of this passage what it takes is having their sins atoned for. He says, you meet the one who rejoices for the right relationship with God. You meet the one who works righteousness. And so they're there and they're in the midst of suffering. And this is what he says. You meet the one who works righteousness, not the one who's, who's gaining righteousness but by doing works, but the one who sees injustice and does something. It takes a very low skill set to recognize injustice. It takes the incredible presence of perversion and a wayward heart to be invisible and ignorant of injustice, but it takes very little skill to see injustice. You can read the news. You can drive the streets of our city. You can meet and talk to almost anybody, and through the course of that conversation, recognize injustice in their lives and recognize injustice around them. It's easy to recognize injustice. Can I tell you, it's even easier to sit there and do nothing. Sit there with this, this look on our faces that just kind of scowl and be frustrated. We see politicians do stuff. We see actors do stuff. We see producers do stuff. We see our neighbors engage in things. And it's easy to be irate and irritated. Congratulations. 
but to involve yourself, to invest yourself, to seek for the good of the widow and the orphan, to seek for the good of the marginalized, to seek for the good of the immigrant, to seek for the good of someone whose worldview you despise, and you're doing that not in hopes you change their worldview and perspective, but you're doing that because they are made in the image and the likeness of our God, and you recognize injustice has no place so long as you're able to draw breath and do something. This is who God delights to meet. It's not the Christian who takes to Facebook or social media or writes their senator this letter just spelling out all the ways they've been disappointed and all the ways they want to see America return to 1950s religiosity and morality. This person's not seeking to upright and upend injustice. This person's just having a voice. To correct injustice is going to cost you something. It'll cost you standing, it'll cost you friends, it'll cost you time, and it'll cost you money. But this is who our God delights to meet. This is who he has made you to be. This is why he has given you this job. This is why he has given you this family. This is why he has given you this community. This is why he has given you this hardship. So that you can be a man and woman who brings justice. And how do we know what justice looks like? He says it's the one who remembers his ways. When we remember the ways of our God, we move in kind, we move in response to them. We're not going out there and making up what justice looks like. We're doing the very same things we've seen our great God do. We're bringing justice to those who have none. And we're doing that in response to what we have seen him do. We are those who remember his ways. And the interesting thing is Isaiah wants to offer this confession. It's such a bold and terrible confession that so many of us would do well to echo. So starting in the latter half of verse 5 and really running through verse 7 is this prayer of confession. So he recognizes they want justice out there. They don't want justice in here. So he has to do something about it. So he begins to leave them in kind of this prayer corporate for the nation. So look what he says first. He says, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. Now, he's not having this description saying, Look, God, you're having a bad day. You're all huffy up in heaven. And so we just kind of went and we did our thing because you wouldn't give us the time of day. In essence, what he's describing is two contemporary events. So he says, You were angry, and we stood in our sin. And your anger continued to persist as long as we persisted in sin. He's not muddying over it. He's not excusing their behavior. He says, just very directly, we were sinning and sinful. Man, that should be the testimony of the vast majority of our hearts this morning. Not that we try and cover over our sin, not that we try and make our sin be more palatable or better looking or to excuse it, but we would say, I stood in my sin. When I stood in my sin, I met your anger, I met your justice. goes on, he says, and in our sins, we've been a long time. See, this isn't a people who have just kind of engaged in, oh, man, I skipped Sunday school this morning, as many of you do each week. It's not just this idea of, oh, you know, I, I just said a real harsh word, and I shouldn't have said that. 
what he describes of people that have been so incredibly enmeshed and admired in their sin that it could be said of them, we are a people like whom you've never ruled, we're a people like whom have never been called by your name. They've been in their sin so long, some of them have forgotten what it looks like to be righteous. And is that true of you today? Is that true of your heart today? You've been so comfortable in sin, you've been so comfortable in your waywardness that you don't know how to relate to God in any other way. Look what Isaiah continues with. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He looks out and he says, Every single one of us is unclean. All of us have some sin abiding and resting in our hearts. And then he, he goes on, and so it's not just enough to talk about them as a people and that they are, in fact, sinful. Then he says, Hey, this person over here who wants to look and to say, Hey, look, I know. Like, I know these guys over here are sinful, so I know Jesse and Chase are sinful, but come on, we're on the other side of the room. We're closer over here. We are not sinful. In fact, we're not sinful. And I say, how do you know you're not sinful? I say, well, look at all the stuff we've done. Look at all the stuff we've done. Look at all the amazing things that we've done. And so they begin to describe them. Well, I give money to the poor. I, I work righteousness for the widow. I work righteousness for the orphan. I work righteousness for all these various things. That's what God wants them to understand. All of their right, supposed righteous deeds, he says, they are like a polluted garment. And Isaiah's not talking about some greasy, dirty rag. You've been changing uh, parts in your car. He's not talking about something cast off. You blow your nose in it and throw it on the ground, although that's truly disgusting. Within the confines of his day, he wants to give them an image that would be so striking that they would be arrested in their steps. So he describes their righteous deeds in terms of the cloth a woman would sit on in the time of her period. And so they have all of this imagery working in their minds. So they have this idea of their righteous deeds, and they have to juxtapose that. They have to see that alongside bloody, filthy rags. So when they're tempted to think of their righteousness, he wants them to immediately be hit with this image. They said, that is not me. And of course, God's response is, this is exactly what your deeds are. So faced with this, Isaiah begins to describe them in terms of, of a leaf. He says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. I can tell you that it, it, the fact that it's fall, of course, it didn't feel like it yesterday. And all the leaves are falling off the trees. And it's the one time of year that every time I look at my gutters, I think, oh, 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 oh. So you get up there on the ladder and you begin to scoop out the leaves and then what happens? The wind comes along and it makes it look so effortless. And you're like, could you blow here and out and down the downspout and then that way? And so you get a leaf blower and that just doesn't cut it. But he describes their iniquity, he describes their sin, and he says our sin carries us away like a leaf on the wind. And this is where we are begins to talk about the long-lasting effect of sin. He says, there is no one, verse 7, who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you had made us, look what he did, how he describes this, to melt in the hand of our iniquity. Can I tell you that this is an amazing and grace-filled thing that our God allows us to happen to us? We have some sin. 
We have something that we're not able to overcome, and so he allows us to effectively be cooked and melted within the hand of our sin. The crucible, crucible of sin, when we are in there, we feel its pressure, we feel its heat, and the only thing that can rescue us from the hand of our iniquities is a gracious Father. We can't dig ourselves up out of our iniquity and sin. We can't overcome addiction by quitting. We can't overcome hateful by being more loving. We overcome these things by the grace of our Father's investment in our lives. This is why he says, in verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We've been long in sin. We've been apathetic against sin. But the redemptive approach comes from the remembrance that God is their Father. If you're a Christian in this room today, and you are losing the battle to sin, it's hate, it's idolatry, it's pornography. You're chasing after goodness. And you've been doing it so long that you don't know what else to do. What brings you out of it is the remembrance of the permanence of the relationship that God is your Father. He has formed you and He has fashioned you like clay. And He bids you return. He bids you, come. Verse 9, he says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Why? Behold, please look, we are all your people. He begins to point at the surety of their relationship with God. And so the question becomes, what is God going to do with their injustice? What is he going to do with their waywardness? How is God going to single-handedly move to address the issue of injustice? Is it by submitting people and saying, you just need to be a better people. You just need to follow this instruction a little bit better. You just need to straighten these things up. You just need to quit urinating in public. You need to quit doing these things. You just need to have an all-around better approach and be, a, be an upright, good-standing, and moral member of society. No. I suppose that's what many of us have tried to do. And suppose that's what many of us, many of the people in our community suppose that Christianity purports. But you see, God handles, he addresses the issue of injustice in the most unlikely of ways. The thing that God does is not to make the mountains quake again, but it's to send his son in the most unassuming way possible to be born in a backwater nowhere, to be born to, not to people of note, to be, to be born to people who are relatively unknown by anyone around them. To allow this child to grow up in obscurity, and then when he reaches maturity, when he steps in in full manhood, being perfectly sinless and innocent, to visit all the injustice of the world upon him. Isaiah has already told us in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, Isaiah doesn't call them to perfect, sinless behavior. Because that's not God's plan. God's plan for how to settle with finality the issue of injustice is to send one perfect and sinless and to allow all of your sin, to allow all of my sin and the pain and the penalty of that sin to be visited upon him. God handles the issue of injustice by pouring out his wrath upon Christ. Paul, writing in the book of Romans, said it this way. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice of our great King. That in coming and being born and living a sinless life, and then ultimately in dying in our stead, in our place, in that we are justified when we are united to Him by faith. God answers the problem of injustice by making Christ simultaneously the just and the justifier. Let me ask the deacons to come forward as I pray for us and ask God's blessing upon this time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, this morning... We recognize much injustice across our city and nation and world. God, I pray that, that men and women would be justified, have right standing before you through the blood of Christ. And God, we pray and look forward to the day when you will come and there will be no more tears, no more hurt, no more anguish as you finally bring justice to all. And so, Father, I pray as we take the Lord's Supper today that we would reflect upon that. Are our lives lived desiring your justice to reign in our hearts? Or are we simply content to see justice visited upon the world around us? So, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.